brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep.com, on time, on target. Um, so last episode was myself and Luke Ryan, and I, I don't know what I could reveal. I said on the last podcast that you did some type of media involving, you know, you speaking about Wayne Simmons. It's a uh, it's a mini series, like podcast mini series that's being produced um, about Wayne Simmons. And are you allowed to say with who or? Um, I, I don't think it's a, a, a secret or anything per se, but it's not my work. Sure. Um, it, it's being produced by a uh, reputable journalist, um, somebody who's worked on the story before. And uh, it sounds like they're doing a pretty you know, in-depth, you know, deep dive, long form podcast series, like some of these other series that are, are, that are done in podcast form, where they really go deep into a subject like they did on, um, like, you know, there's that one on Bergdahl. Um, other subjects like that, and everyone's familiar at this point with how popular those types of podcasts have gotten. Yeah, so that'll be great. So, yeah, it's not going to come out until um, later this year. Uh, I don't know how much of, you know, they interviewed me for like maybe an hour, hour and a half. Um, and I don't know how much of that's going to get used or what isn't, but I, I think it'll come out well, and I think it's going to be pretty interesting. You are a good source on it because, as I mentioned to Luke last episode, like you told me years before it came out publicly that Wayne Simmons was full of shit. Yeah, and I mean that's one of the things that you know, like they asked me when they interviewed me, they're like, "How did Fox News not know? How did DOD not know?" Um, you know, and I and I you know told them I was like. They knew all along. Uh, well, I mean, Fox News didn't know. I would say DOD and the CIA knew all along. Fox News just didn't have any interest in vetting the guy. Uh, but also, how do you vet the guy? They're, like, they don't have a staff at Fox News that are guys like you or guys who are former CIA. Well, if you are running a giant multi-million or billion-dollar news outlet like Fox News and you don't have the resources to reach back and verify someone's credentials, that does not speak very highly of what you do. I, I, <laughs> I guess, but I mean, as someone who's booked guests for like multiple organizations, I, and and I did book Wayne Simmons, I've said this before, if you see a guy who has a book out there, Donald Rumsfeld quote on the yep. cover, other people tell you this guy's legit, I'm going to believe he's legit. Yeah, that's how con artists work. They work by association. So they'll try to be like friends with me, get my picture taken. I'm just using myself as an sure. example. Could be somebody, <laughs> ideally someone of a much higher stature than myself. Um, and I get pictures taken with them and so forth. And then they can show that. And Wayne Simmons used that type of logic. Like, look, here's a picture of me and Don Rumsfeld. If I wasn't in the CIA, I wouldn't be there hanging out with Don Rumsfeld. Therefore I must have been in the CIA. And not only a picture, a quote on his book, a quote on his that's book. That's a big thing. Like that's, 
pretty big. I would not think Donald Rumsfeld gives his name out to everybody. I mean, I can't think offhand too many books he's blurbed. Yeah. You know, um, but they met each other on the military analyst program. Um, which in itself is crazy. And how, so. how did he get onto that, uh, which is interesting. And I, I've some of the research I did, it appears that his sister works at the Pentagon. I have to wonder if she didn't pave the way for him a little bit, but I really don't know. That is where I depart from you a little bit, though. I don't really blame Fox News for or any organization for having him on. Like, I just, as someone who works in the media, like, they don't usually have this apparatus there of guys no, who... No, they, could... they don't. But if you're putting somebody on air every day saying this person is former CIA and they're speaking from their, uh, their, their experience as an intelligence professional, you have a responsibility to your audience to verify that person and not just put uh, con artists. You can't just put con artists up on 24-hour news and have them spouting off all kinds of crazy ideas and theories uh, and not take responsibility for that. Yeah, I mean, it makes me wonder, who do you, do you think they should have a department there for that type of thing? Because a guest booker is not going to know. I think there should be somebody working in the office that, like, checks up on this kind of stuff. I've been on all kinds of TV news. I have been quoted in newspapers and things like this. The only paper, the only time anyone has ever asked to see my credentials, like, Jack, I need to see... Um, your certificate from when you graduated the Q course. That has only happened once. It was a journalist at the Wall Street Journal. And he was almost like apologetic, like, oh, I'm sorry, I have my, you know, I really I have to make sure that I, I cover all my bases. And I was like, dude, don't apologize. You're doing the right thing. You should ask for that. You should ask everybody for that because there's so many people out there that, you know, are not trustworthy. Um, but it speaks very poorly for um, the news media, I think it even speaks poorly for the Department of Defense and for the CIA that they allow these types of people to kind of roam around and it took so long before any sort of action was taken. And at the end of the day, I mean, DOJ, I think they got him on, um, uh, what was it, fraud? It it was like real estate fraud. It wasn't because he was pretending to be a CIA officer. Yeah, so uh, be on the lookout for that. and by the way, I'm looking forward to having Nate Boyer on. We have a great email here that was sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com that you would definitely be better uh, to answer than myself. This is from Matt from the Bronx. Hey, guys, love the show. Thanks for doing two shows a week and putting it out for free. I listen to them, and I'm grateful to you. Try, trying to keep it brief, war journalist Ralph Pizzullo was recently on the Adam Carolla show and expressed a very interesting narrative about Benghazi. Pizzullo claimed to have a source who is former British SBS that was part of one of the CIA teams who were purchasing weapons in Libya and smuggling them to the rebels in Syria. According to Pizzullo, the SBS cat alleges that his team had been purchasing weapons from a specific AQ commander in Libya. As the story goes, during one transition, the AQ commander pulls guns and threatened his team because the U.S. had captured his brother. The AQ commander demanded his brother's return and wanted a formal apology from Ambassador Stevens. Pizzullo 
then went on to allege that the only reason Stevens was in Benghazi was because he was ordered by the State Department to actually deliver that apology to ensure the weapons kept flowing. Then, obviously, all hell broke loose. You guys wrote the book on the topic, meaning you and Brandon. I'm just wondering if you think this is credible or if you've heard this story before. I looked up Pizzuolo, and he seems pretty accomplished. Since this claim was broadcast on one of the most widely listened to podcasts on the planet, I thought you might have some thoughts. Again, thanks for all you do. Once again, Matt from the Bronx. Well, I mean, I couldn't say one way or the other for a fact because I haven't talked to this alleged British SBS guy. Um, Maybe he'd be a good guest. It, it sounds like a war story to me, just to be honest. I mean, it doesn't. It, it sounds like a Hollywood script. It doesn't sound like, you know, like who was that guy that went on uh, that Laura, Laura Logan had on uh, yeah. sixty Minutes and turned out he was telling war stories about how I, I was on the compound and I was butt stroking rebels and all this stuff, and it turned out he was a total fraud. Um, I don't know. It, it doesn't really sound realistic to me. What about when we had Evan Barlow on, who says like he was told we're going to kill your ambassador? Yeah, that was pretty. Crazy. Yeah, a lot of people. It wasn't uh, like some huge secret that Ambassador Stevens was under threat. I mean, he he knew he was under threat. He wrote in his uh, in his diary, which we published excerpts from on Softrap. You know, I, I think the last line in the diary was like ever going or nonstop security threats. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, I mean, it was it was a known factor. Um, and Stephen took those risks, though. Uh, he believed in what he was doing, and he believed in the importance of what he was doing in Libya. Um, and, you know, sadly, you know, he paid a price. Yeah. All right, well, if you have any other emails like that, keep them coming to softrep.radio at softrep.com. I check them all out. I'm not able to read all of them, but I read what I can. I guess the new... Uh, the biggest news of today, and I talked about this on the podcast with Luke, but it was before the actual pick was announced. Um, the new Supreme Court justice nominee, you know, who has to be approved, is Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. But, yeah, I basically talked a bit about on the podcast with Luke. Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, okay. Well, I talked about um, on the podcast with Luke how... Uh, I'm already seeing, like, a million articles about Israel versus Wade going to get overturned. Like, that's the big issue that people are wondering. But I think that even if uh, I talked about this on the last show, but even if Roe versus Wade does get overturned, it's not the way that I think the left in the media would like to make it sound. If that decision gets overturned, it doesn't mean abortion is suddenly illegal throughout all of the United States. It would be handled much like the gun laws in America. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like one of those dog whistle issues. Like you just bring it up and people start freaking out. Sure. Um, I, I don't see it being overturned, even if they get very conservative Supreme Court justices nominated. I mean, there's been so many Supreme Court rulings on this issue, so many Supreme Court rulings on like gun rights. Like I, if you, you know, if you had it the other way around and you started getting liberal justices nominated, I mean, that's not really how the Supreme Court works. Like they don't just like willy nilly like strike things from the record, and it is a a group of justices that that all have to weigh in on these decisions. I, I mean, I'm not quite as panicked as some people. Yeah, are. I mean, th- but we do typically know how these guys are going to vote, you know, and that's why people went so crazy when um, was it Roberts when he um, basically approved uh, Obamacare and. You know, people were like, wow, this is a Bush appointee. We can't believe that he went this way. 
And because typically we know what's going to be like a five to four decision, how these guys are going to go. I mean, maybe they're just making impartial decisions and they're not, you know, uh, being activist judges. Yeah. But I, you know, as Trump has said, he wants, he said it before when he, when he appointed the last Supreme court justice, but you know, that he wanted someone in the mold of Antonin Scalia. And I think we're going to continue to get justice under Trump which we might even get another, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, extremely old, you know, like, talking, is she talking about retiring? She may have, I don't know. I mean, she's, she's getting up there in terms of age. Yeah. She's, she's uh, pretty old. Yeah. So, you know, I think he does want to appoint more Scalia type judges who are like gun rights advocates, anti abortion, which, you know, it, so the thing is, I don't think people should ever be in a panic over this stuff, but at the same time, when we elect a president, this is like the biggest change that happens to the country because it's it, it's not a four year or eight year decision. These people have lifetime appointments. It, it, it can be, it can yeah. be, and and I mean, of course, it's it's good to be politically engaged in these things, um, even if we're not going into panic mode. But I mean, it, it could be one of the more important things. The president can do a number of other things in in the interim. That- but it, chaos. but it can be struck down four <laughs> years later, eight years later. These people are there until they well, die. What usually. I'm saying is, like, if you invade a country like Iraq, yes, that's, that's not that's something. True. You can't really put the genie back in the bottle yes. there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and by the way, for those wondering, you know, I mean, this does affect the military as well. I remember a, a Supreme Court decision years back. But, you know, for example, doing like underwater testing for the Navy and there was a whole animal rights issue about, like, it hurting, um, you know, the hearing of, like, whales and different, you know. And there were liberal justices who were like, yeah, we don't want this being done. Con- more conservative judges saying it's fine. So it does affect, like, what you guys could do having hands tied behind your back, that type of thing. Yeah. It, I mean, they're making rulings on what is and is not constitutional. I mean, it's, it's the fundamental fabric of our society. Or remember Sonia Sotomayor, who in her um, life working at a college was against military recruiters coming on college on college campuses. Was she really? Yeah, yeah. Huh. I believe it was Sotomayor because there was two justices appointed by Obama. Right. Um, I'm going to fact check myself here. Um, yeah, she was one of them. Yeah, no, she was, but. It, I'm wondering if it was her or the other one with the military recruiting. It might. Yes, no, it was Elena Kagan. Um, Elena Kagan, and I'm looking at the New York Daily News here, um, grilled over military recruitment at Harvard. Supreme Court nominee Elena Kagan, who is now on the Supreme Court, was forcefully put on the defensive Tuesday when a top Republican grilled her over banning military recruiting at Harvard University. So... But this was before she was a Supreme Court justice. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, this is when she worked at Harvard. Right. But when you talk about, like, are these people going to be activist judges, that says something about their activism to me. If you don't want military recruiting on campus, that tells me something about how you feel politically. Uh, it, it may, yeah, but it may also not speak to the decisions that they make as a judge. I mean, yeah, no, you, that's can, true. you can have, um, you know, sort of like being a soldier in the sense that you can have a political identity and political beliefs, but when you put the uniform on and you go to work, you're not really serving as a Democrat or a Republican. Yeah. Well, 
But I, I think that's what we hope to find in a Supreme Court judge anyway. Um, may not always be the case, but we hope to find somebody who's impartial and they, they look at, um, you know, our founding documents. They look at the law. They look at, uh, I don't think, um, legal precedence doesn't have as much importance when they make their decisions on the Supreme Court, does it? It shouldn't, but it does for a lot of them. Does it for the Supreme Court? Yeah, uh, but it's, you know, the whole idea is, I mean, there's basically two factions of people when it comes to the Supreme Court. There's, there's the those people who think we should just be constitutionalists. And yeah, there's the, and the, you know, or who are often called originalists who are like, just look at the document itself, go by, you know, what we have written our founding documents. And I believe sometimes they even, depending on the person, sometimes they will even look at like the documents that influenced the founding documents, yeah. so like the Federalist Papers and things like that. And then there's the people who are the more left left wing people who will say, you know, this was 1776, we're in 2018, times change, we have to change things. And I, I remember even Ginsburg saying, like, we should start looking at international law for some things, which is pretty crazy. But Yeah, it is crazy. Um, but on the topic, actually, of courts and justices and all that, I was uh, messaging with you about this yesterday. How about the fact that no, no matter where you stand on this illegal immigration stuff going on, that we now have one-year-old children taking the stand in court and literally a judge saying to them, like, do you understand the proceedings that are <laughs> coming before you and they're separated from their parents? You know, I'm sure someone's going to think I'm some type of social justice warrior for saying we shouldn't no, have one-year-olds on the stand. The system is broke. And I'm it's pretty – I'll be honest, I'm pretty um, – conservative on the issue of illegal immigration. We've talked about this before, but I, I, there's absolutely no reason I, sh I would see that a one-year-old should be on the stand yeah. for the actions of their parents coming well, here illegally. I, mean, I also believe strongly in the rule of law and uh, that we should have borders, that we should uh, have border security, all of that good stuff that we should have, that we should have legal immigration, that there are avenues for people to uh, apply to immigrate to the United States. I, I totally believe in all of that. But the system as it currently exists is broken and flawed. And, I, and when you have families being separated, kids being, uh, you know, put into these prisons and separated from their parents, I mean, things are fucking broken. We, we just need to be look in the mirror and be like, God damn, what are we doing? And we need to start fixing some of these issues and, and figure out how we can. I mean, there's always going to be illegal immigrants coming into the United States in one shape or form. And we have to we've got to do a better job and treating them in a more humane manner. Um, you know, some of them are criminals. Sure, we're going to throw them in prison. Uh, but some of them are just normal. A lot, most of them are just normal people trying to come here and find work. I just wonder how do you fix the, the just the specific issue of having a one-year-old on the stand? Because from what I, I read articles about it and, like, the judge himself was clearly uncomfortable doing this. And, like, how do we just say, well, this is what the precedent is, you, you know? What, what was the scenario, that the, the one-year-old had been separated from the family? Yeah, they're, they're having all of these people in court. The one I was reading, there was a Huffington Post one, and, yes, I know it's more left-wing, but there were several articles about this. Um, but I'll read it right here. Uh, this is from Huffington Post. 
a one-year-old boy who was in federal custody who appeared in immigration court without his parents in Phoenix, briefly played with a ball, drank a bottle, and then cried hysterically as he was about to leave the courtroom Friday, according to the Associated Press. But he was eventually granted a voluntary departure order so the government can fly him to Honduras, where his father has already been sent. The little boy, identified in court as only Johan, was one of the children who appeared in the Arizona court Friday without parents. One boy held up five fingers when the judge asked him his age. Judge John Richardson said he was embarrassed to ask if Johan understood the proceedings, AP reported. I don't know who you would explain it to unless you think that a one-year-old could learn immigration law, he told Johan's attorney. Um, immigration advocates have complained about children going to court, calling it stressful and frightening. People in immigration proceedings, even children, are not guaranteed an attorney, although most unaccompanied minors do appear with representation. So I can go on. But the, the point is, like, I feel like I'm in that idiocracy movie. Yeah. We should have the common sense that you don't put a one-year-old on the stand, just send him back to Honduras with his parents. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, what, what is the fucking point of having him in accord about this. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's a one-year-old. What are we doing? I mean, I would look at this and if I were in politics, if, uh, you know, I would look at this whole situation and be like, we need to fucking tear up our entire legal framework. um, Perhaps even law enforcement framework for border security and rewrite it. Like, like this is so broken. We need to start over again from scratch and completely unfuck this situation. I'd be like, listen, immigration law, you, you, you're on a safety stand down. Yeah. We're having safety stand down Tuesday here and we're going to unfuck this entire situation because everything is so screwed up right now. I think it's, you know, you have one side who has talked about granting amnesty for everyone who's here, which is a political tool because these people are going to vote for Democrats. So that's why Democrats are for this. And I I don't think it's a good idea. So then you have people on the right that are like, how do we push back against this? And, you know, you're not having any logical idea of how to fix yeah, this. Well, and, and then it, it descends into the left calling ICE Nazis and saying that we have concentration camps in America and yeah. all this like, what the fuck? And like, in, in those scenarios where it's like these extremes and these zero-sum games um, where you think that the people you're arguing against are literally Nazis and you are likening yourself to, you know, like the Jewish resistance or something in World War II. It's like, okay, now we have left reality. Yeah. Like we have left reality behind and nothing productive is going to come out of that, uh, that rhetoric and that sort of debate because it's just two people screaming past each other. Yep. Yeah, that's what it's become. Um, all right. I guess with that, we should get over to Nate Boyer. Um, I'm excited to interview him because the Colin Kaepernick issue and the kneeling during the National Anthem, I mean, it was such... Like a heated debate, especially like this past yep. year, it's going to continue to be as the football season comes. And I think that the Nate Boyer story, and we'll talk about it with him, is so underreported because people have forgotten the fact that originally Colin Kaepernick was sitting down yep. and it was Nate who suggested to him that he kneel. Yes. So, And it's interesting. I mean, I think, I think Nate's an interesting guy because he's trying to – be the adult in the room and kind of lead the way and not be that person we were talking about before where you're screaming at people and making these bombastic comments. I sense that he's trying to um, have have an adult conversation. So I think it's going to be interesting to talk to him. So let's get him on. Joining us on the show for the first time, really excited to have him on, Nate Boyer. 
Uh, Nate is a former staff sergeant, uh, six years in the Army, multiple tours to Iraq and Afghanistan, also a former pro NFL player with the Seattle Seahawks. We, of course, want to get into the national anthem stuff, but first want to get into your background and everything. And it's just a pleasure to have you on, man. It's good to be here. Very good to be here. I uh, appreciate you guys uh, having me and, and, and your services as well. Yeah, thanks, Nate. You know, it's uh, great to have you on, too, because as I was saying, Ian, earlier, uh, we live in, you know, very politically charged times. And uh, I think what our, the sense I get from you is that you've been trying to lead an adult conversation about <laughs> about politics and public life. Yeah, I don't think politics and adult conversations uh, go together. The more I, <laughs> the more I become involved in all this stuff, uh, which I think we all kind of knew that, but it's uh, yeah, and, and that's not a new thing. You know, I'm not I'm not knocking the uh, the you know the current or even the um, former administration. I mean, it's been like that forever. It's sure. just uh, it's kind of silly, you know, and and we're all better than that and we can do better than that. And we know that. And, and then a lot of times we just refuse to, I think, and it's it tearing us apart at this point. Yeah. It's like we're, we're choosing the, uh, the emotion, that little serotonin addiction that makes us feel good when we, we shout at somebody. Totally. You know? Um, I mean, that's, I was just talking about that, uh, yesterday with a bunch of, uh, veterans that are part of a, a charity I'm, I'm pretty involved with. And, you know, we, we, we talk about a lot of stuff when, when we get together, um, in the vet community and, you know, hopefully at this point, more and more of us are becoming vulnerable enough to admit we've got some issues of our own and all that. Sure. Um, and things aren't always easy and, you know, we can't just suck it up and drive it on, drive on all the time. But we also, you know, we were talking a lot about, I mean, just yeah, the social media era and, um, everything is just super bipolar on social media. (laughs) (laughs) There is no like, you know, what'd you do today? Oh, you know, I, I went and got the mail, went to the bank, you know, my wife out to dinner, played with my kids. Exactly. It's like everything that happened today was either a hundred or zero. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was just the worst thing ever, or it was incredible. And that is not normal and not healthy. And I think it's bleeding into all of this stuff that we're about to get into. Yeah, I I would agree for sure. Before we get into all that, though, I think the audience would probably like to hear just your background as a Green Beret and how you got into the Army and all that. Yeah. Yeah. uh, So I grew up mostly in the Bay Area, in California, actually. Um, I was born in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, uh, right next to Knoxville where the university of Tennessee is. That's where my dad went to veterinary school. He's a race horse veterinarian. Um, and then when I was really young, we moved to the Bay area and he started working at a, a track up there called golden gate fields. And my mom got her PhD at uh, Berkeley in environmental science. So both my parents were, you know, really educated, really motivated. Um, and definitely didn't force anything upon me, but, um, I mean, partly I felt pressure <laughs> to <laughs> succeed in some way, but also, you know, they encouraged me to to not be average. And that was just sort of, yeah, I mean, it's how they are. You know, they, they, they're both, they're both, you know, from working class families and like just worked very hard and put themselves through school and do, and, and did it, you know, the good old fashioned way. Drove on. And, 
And so, you know, as I went on though, I, I obviously I, I love sports. Um, that's something that was a huge part of my life. Um, actually didn't play football growing up, played, played baseball, basketball, every other sport and was a decent athlete and worked pretty hard at it, but never was great. Right. Um, and, and you know, and I get into high school and I'm, I think I'm trying to, I'm, I'm starting to see the writing on the wall that I'm probably not going to be able to play one of these professional sports or even collegiate sports. And I sort of threw in the towel on school too. You know, I, I stopped uh, putting in that kind of effort and, and I kind of just coasted by, I was, I, I tested pretty well on stuff, but I wasn't working hard. And I finished high school, didn't want to go to college, didn't want to, didn't want to further my education, didn't know what I wanted to do. I moved down to San Diego, started working on a fishing boat. Um, and just, you know, and I enjoyed it. I just kind of wanted to have that blue collar life, I think, and earn my way kind of like my parents did maybe. And, uh, so I worked on the boat, ended up moving up to Los Angeles, was interested, um, in the film industry. You know, I, I, I think that it's obviously such a powerful medium, uh, the storytelling there and didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with that. Um, and it didn't matter because then nine 11 happened and it sort of shifted my thinking as it did pretty much everybody's thinking. Um, and, and for me, it wasn't the military right away, but it was getting outside my comfort zone, getting outside the box, thinking more globally. And like, what am I really doing now today in my life that was making, you know, a damn bit of difference to anybody. And I ended up, and I, I struggled quite a bit back here at home with, with different things. And we don't have to get into the details on that, but y'all can imagine. And, uh, you know, eventually I just, I had to get at it. I had to get out of this bubble. I had to get away from, from America for a bit. And, um, wasn't a really patriotic person at the time, ended up, uh, going over to, uh, the Darfur and doing some relief work over there, um, uh, along the Chadian border next to Sudan, uh, at the height of this genocide, man. And it just completely changed my life, changed my perspective on things. Um, I, I gained my patriotism, patriotism over there and, and really started to appreciate the opportunities uh, but also how fortunate I was to have what I have here, but also how much of a beacon of hope we are for much of the world, not just the developing world, but the world. And man, I, I like it, to see how appreciative people that had absolutely nothing and were dying and starving that an American would just come over there and help for a little while. Um, it meant so much to them and it made me realize and understand how important we are as Americans and what we do, um, overseas, no matter what that may be. And, uh, so my last week in country there, I got really sick. I actually got malaria and I'm listening to this little radio. Uh, I'm listening to, uh, BBC and it's like the second battle of Fallujah, uh, wow. is happening. And it's like the play by play for that, you know? And it just like, I don't know if I was delirious from being sick or what, <laughs> But I was like, I'm, I'm joining the military when I get back. That's exactly what I'm doing. And I came back and didn't know what I was going to do in the military, but found out about uh, the Army Special Forces uh, and, and that 18 x-ray program for the Green Berets mm -hmm. where you could come in off the street. Um, and if you tested well enough, you, you'd have an opportunity to go to Special Forces Selection after basic training in airborne school and 
potentially go right into um, you know that training to be a Green Beret uh, just a few months after enlisting. And I did that program, and you know I obviously worked my my butt off and got through it. Graduated, got my Green Beret about a year and a half later, and then you know started deploying. So that's sort of my my journey into the into the military. So that uh, experience in Sudan. It was something that really made you want to, uh, I guess, participate in what was happening in the world in, in a new and different way. Is that right? Totally. Completely. I mean, I, you know, I, I was living in, I was, and I'm living back in Los Angeles now with a different mindset, but mm-hmm. I think I was letting, you know, that was a time we'd just gone to Iraq, um, you know, not long before. And there was a lot of, I mean, I guess it's before social media, but it was still, you know, there was a lot of people upset about that. Yeah. Um, and in a town like this, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of pointing fingers at, at people in power. Like it's, you know, and it, it's always blame shifting for any, any problem you have in your own life. Um, but also it's just popular to, you know, be anti whatever <laughs> and kind of go against the, kind of go against the, you know, against the grain somewhat. And I don't know, I just fed into, it. I was a kid, you know, I just, I, I fed into it. I didn't, I didn't really understand it. I didn't care to. Um, and it's probably just angst I had going on in my own life. And so I, I just bought into all of that, 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 you know, what we were, what we were doing in, in Iraq specifically was just coming from a place of, of like, imperialism and evil sort of and it's absolutely not the truth <laughs> especially once i was over there you know um but i had to learn that lesson and i had to learn it uh, for myself and um if i didn't go over there and and and, and work at those camps uh, which is kind of counterintuitive to what you would think would happen i mean a lot of people come back they're like i'm gonna join the peace corps and do this for the rest of my life and i was <laughs> like no nah, i want these people need somebody to fight for them like yeah. that's what they need so, yeah, it was, it was, a. I mean, everybody has an interesting, it's an interesting time in almost anybody's life in their late turn, late teens and early twenties, but it was definitely a, a big shift for me. And then in special forces, did you end up getting deployed to Iraq? Yeah, that was my first, uh, the, my first deployment was to Iraq actually. And I was in, uh, I started out actually in first special forces group out in Okinawa and then, uh, it's a whole nother podcast, but I oh, yeah. was my way into a uh, 10 special forces group <laughs> and, uh, was able to deploy to Iraq with them, um, with, uh, an ODA out of the third battalion. And it was awesome. It was, it, it was incredible, man. It's, I keep in touch with a lot of those guys from that team. And, um, yeah, it was a, you know, it was, it was an interesting time there too. I mean, it was uh, 2008 by the time I finally got over there. Okay. And, uh, so, and, and where we were, we were in the, the Shiite holy city in the Joth and, uh, it, it was, you know, we had this, this kind of small team house and we were sort of out on our own and it was a lot of, <laughs> it was a lot of key leader engagements, mm-hmm. you know, it was a lot for the first few months there. It was a lot of trying to work with local government and like get approval to go out on these missions because we had so many bad dudes kind of bedding down there because it was like this. And they were talking about renegotiating the sofa around that time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so it was, you know, it was a delicate, it was like a delicate mission that we had. And, you know, we were eventually able to, 
um, work with you know, the local authorities, I guess you'd call them, and uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> local government, the local governments, um, you know, and conduct some some pretty impactful missions, and uh, especially towards the back end of that deployment, um, really get some good work done, and 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 get some you know some of those high value targets uh, uh, taken care of, and so it was, yeah, it was cool. I, I learned a ton about. Um, you know, being a warrior dip, diplomat, which is what we ultimately have to be in the special operations, especially in this war, because um, it's definitely a complicated one. Were there any like key takeaways from your experience in Iraq? I, I'm just curious because I uh, I was in Iraq my the second time in in 2009. So I mean, I mm-hmm. think the political situation we experienced over there was probably fairly similar. Yeah, I mean, it's it was my first it was my first deployment you know i mean I'd, I'd obviously been to some kind of wild places before but um you know it was it's it was it was very interesting to me how and i and i don't want to come off and sound you know arrogant or anything like that but just how um i guess uneducated and um, corrupt and backwards so much of, of, you know, what was going on in local society there was in local government. You're not um, wrong. So yeah. just how, you know, it, how sometimes just like a really simple suggestion or answer would solve this problem that's been hampering people for years and years and years. And sometimes they take the advice, sometimes they don't, you know, and it's just, it comes back to this, what was really cool about what we have here is the separation of church and state, you know, and they, and they don't have that there. Um, and it's, it's like, it's the same problem in Afghanistan. It's like the, the type of oppression, uh, I think that is most prevalent is this educational oppression where yeah. if we just kind of keep everybody dumbed stupid, down, you know, they're, they're not gonna, uh, fight us. They're, they're going to just go along with what we say cause they don't know any better, you know? And, uh, makes them dependent on, you know, the shakes or the mullahs or whoever's running the show. Exactly. Exactly. And then and they should be, you know, those should be spiritual advisors, period. They should not be, <laughs> uh, you know, people that run our, our, our way of life and determine the quality of life that we have. Well, and it's also a question of how do you have, how do you cooperate with one another in a nation state if everything is viewed through a religious lens? Uh, there, there's no opportunities for Sunni and Shia to work together. If you're the entire lens you see society through is, is through a religious one. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I think people would argue that, uh, here too, but it's like that level and the extent of that is not even comparable. Right. I mean, it's just so different. Um, and, and also, I mean, just the, 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 the oppression of women and just, you know what, last night I, I talked to a, uh, I got to hear this story from a, uh, he was, a, he was not an interpreter, but he was an Iraqi contractor, um, that drove, he was driving trucks for us over there. Right. And he's working with the Marines and, you know, he, he was talking about, um, how just grateful he was to be here, but also like it really hurts him that people don't appreciate this country more and don't understand how absolutely amazing it is. 
Yeah. Um, because he was like, you know, and he was like nonchalantly telling me the story and he's like, yeah, I, you know, I got, uh, I got rolled up at a checkpoint. Um, and I wasn't with any of the Americans at the time. And some of the people working there knew I was working for them. And, you know, he got, uh, detained, put in this room with like three other guys. I think one of them was his, it was like a couple of his best friends and cousin. And, you know, they got him in there and they're questioning him and they just start cutting off one of the dude's heads, like just right in front of him, you know? And, uh, it was no blindfold and just, you know, doing that. And then it does it to the next guy. And then all of a sudden, you know, he hears helicopters in the distance. There's a big boom at the door and Marines kick the door Holy down and shit. like save, save this guy. You know what I mean? Wow. And, uh, and he's, and he's like, the way he's telling the story though, is it's not for shock and awe value. It's just reality. Yeah. It's part of life. Yeah. It's just part of life. And, and he's just like, and it was a group of vets of us there. So he's looking at all of us. He's like, so thank all of you guys. Thank you so much for, you know, doing this for me. I'm like, we're like, dude, we didn't do that for you. (laughs) That that is insane. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, somebody in the military did and, and God, that's, you know, that's a, it's a crazy story. But like the fact that he was so appreciative appreciative of us who, I mean, some of the people sitting in that room, uh, you know, worked in the chow hall. I mean, it's just different, <laughs> but, uh, to, to hear that from, you know, from one of those guys and, and I've heard countless stories and experienced countless stories over there from a lot of the, you know, the interpreters we worked with and stuff like that. And some of the other, um, and people in society. But that, that was just like the way that he told that story and just, how appreciative he was and understanding that this is, a, it, there's not a lot of places like this in the world, you know, and I, I don't, it's just a matter of perspective, but a lot of people don't, they don't get it. There, there are, yeah, so many memories that just like stick out. We're driving through the city in the middle of the night and it just looks like Mad Max out there. I mean, literally like people warming their hands over a 55 gallon drum with a fire lit in it. And you're like, what planet am I on right now? Uh, I remember we hit one target. Uh, There's supposed to be an HVT there. He wasn't home. It was a a dry hole in that sense. Um, As we were clearing the structure, there's a closet, uh, a closet that was locked up. And there was like these uh, like a little like, you know, um, like little window in the door that had like iron bars on it. And there was a, a mentally disabled child locked in the closet. And he was reaching his hand out from in between the bars, like trying to swat at guys as they walked back. And I mean, you are on a different planet. I mean, this is uh, a totally different society. They do not have the mental health care um, or, or medical or social infrastructure that we have in this country. I mean, I say that as, you know, my mother is a social worker and would have to go to people's homes and, and try to help them out and things like that. And that sort of stuff just doesn't exist in Iraq. And uh, just going to what you were saying a little bit, Nate, is I think sometimes people in America are not really appreciative of our society and and sometimes how delicate civilization can be. Yeah. I mean, there's there's really five basic things that every human in in, in their core probably craves and really needs. Um, aside from anything emotional and that's, you know, clean water, food, shelter, basic education and basic medical care. And 
much of the world does not have those things. Yeah. You know, some of them doesn't have, some of them don't have any of those things. And we have all of those things. And, and I know, I mean, obviously there's a situation in Flint last year where we didn't have clean water for a while and, uh, and they're still working towards that. And there's, I mean, there's obviously our, our education system isn't perfect and all that, but like taking things into perspective and, and there's no reason to not try to improve those things here. Yeah. Yeah. Fight for that stuff. I get it. But I mean, we, most of us did nothing to earn, uh, being born here, you yeah. know, or, <laughs> you know, even many that, that were able to get here, um, later, there's very few, I mean, someone like him, uh, I think deserves to be here more than me anyway. And more than a lot of people, as far as, um, what they've done for this country, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of like interpreters I worked with that. Oh yeah. They fought in Afghanistan for the Americans for 15 years, yep. you know? And they're still not, and they're and they're they're fighting to get over here, you know. And then once they do get here, they're driving Uber, and they love it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, let's just let's just remember that every yeah. day. We got to remember. We got to wake up remembering that before we go okay. uh, off on a tirade. Yeah. A few of my interpreters uh, were Yazidi from Sinjar, and they um, immigrated here with their families and. I was very happy to be one of the people to be able to write uh, like letters of recommendation to the State Department and things like that for these guys. And uh, they were able to come over here with their families um, maybe three years, four years before everything happened in Sinjar when ISIS came through. And I mean, the rest is history. I mean, wiped off the map, basically. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, yeah, it's crazy. I mean... I got, I got a couple, a few buddies that were, um, that were Terps in Afghanistan during my last deployment and they, uh, you know, they live up in, uh, Fremont, California now is a, there's a quite a few, Af- there's like a, a pretty big Afghan community up there, Afghan, you know, um, you know, immigrants and dude, they, they are, they're still trying, they're trying to get their families over here and they're dealing with all that. And it's like, I mean, it's obviously tough. It's not an easy solution there. The immigration issue thing is just, it's, it's been (laughs) broken, complicated for a very long time. This is not a new thing, America, you know, (laughs) this is not one person just deciding now that we're just, we're screwing over a bunch of people. Like our immigration policy has been uh, challenged for for many, many, many years. Yeah, no, it really has. Absolutely. Um, so getting into, you know, the next transition here, you go from that to becoming a professional football player with the NFL. Yeah. Well, first there was college. So, um, I finish, I guess in 2010, I had the decision I had to make of whether to, you know, to reenlist on active duty and uh, continue down, down that path or, um, go to college. And, you know, at that time, I had not been to Afghanistan. I'd just been to Iraq, and Iraq was pretty much over, or at least we we were shutting things down. Yeah, yeah. And so I made that I made that decision, you know, that I was going to do that, and and I, I I got into the University of Texas and decided uh, I was going to do the one thing that I didn't do growing up that I regretted, which was play football, or at least try to play football. And so I went. Uh, you know, I went out for the team. I was a 29 year old freshman and, um, I, I, I go out there during tryouts and just, 
go a hundred miles an hour in the wrong direction. Uh, <laughs> you know, all the time though, just continuing to just, I didn't really befriend anybody. I just kind of, you know, put my head down and hustled and figured, you know, this is my best shot at least getting on the, on the scout team. I mean, Texas is a, a huge program. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they had just been to the national championship game the year before and all this stuff. So, um, and sure enough, I, you know, was able to earn a spot on the team and I was, you know, just on the scout team that first year as a playing safety, learning how to play safety. And, uh, I also made the decision to come back into the military. You know, I, I reenlisted into the Texas national guard, uh, into 19th special forces group. And, uh, the, the deal we sort of struck was they wouldn't, you know, during football season, I, I wouldn't have to, um, you know, go to drill or do anything like that. Cause I couldn't, we had games every weekend. Um, but then I'd make up for it in the spring and then in the summer I'd make myself available to, to go back overseas, whether it was a, you know, a, a training exercise in a, in, in Bulgaria or Greece, uh, which I went to, or if it was going back to Afghanistan, which I happened to do uh, before my junior and senior years. Um, and that was really interesting, uh, really interesting, you know, to, to go to college in, in, in a great, in a great city like Austin with a lot of mostly young, younger students. Um, and then to take off for about three and a half months and go back to Afghanistan and be back on a team and, and part of, you know, part of the last commando mission out there, um, with the, with the Afghan commandos was, it was pretty wild, you know, but I, I, I loved it. And I think most people that have, that had served in that way would agree. Like that's a pretty cool life. Um, was that, was that like super jarring for you though, Nate, to go from, you know, deploying to Afghanistan then going into college life with a, you know, a predominantly young student body. Um, I, I think one of my, you know, characteristics or traits or whatever is I, that I, I love change. Mm -hmm. I like when things are moving, you know, I'd much rather fish in a river than fish in a lake. Sure. Um, that's just how I am. And so that helped, but still, yeah, there's definitely <laughs> there's some tough stuff, you know, transitioning with that and, um, trying to like sort of, you know, turn it off or whatever you want to call it. Um, cause you, you know, when you're in deployment mode, you're in a different mode, everything, at least for me, everything is very regimented. I love the routines. Um, you know, I, I, I work out like crazy because I need, I need like these other things going on that take me away from just becoming overly obsessed with, you know, what happens on missions and going on, sure. going on our missions and doing the, doing the job. Um, and then he come back and like, you know, you also got to being around, uh, women, you know, not really around women. Um, when you're, when you're on a 12 man ODA and, and you're working with, you know, Af you know Afghan you know, special forces and, and you're in the, in the middle of you know, the mountains of Afghanistan, uh, at war, it's just like you see, you talk differently, you, <laughs> different yeah. things are okay and acceptable to say. And I, you know, I know that's probably not popular during the me too movement to say that stuff, but it's different than uh, being deployed to, uh, say Costa Rica. <laughs> yeah. It's very different. It's very different. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I get done. I'm not condoning it, but it's just what we do. I mean, it's just how we sort of cope and, um, and, and, <laughs> you come back and you just have to 
think before you speak and think before you act. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's very different. So, so that kind of stuff, um, I don't know. I, I think I do have a good, I, I'm good at reading people and kind of understanding situations. Um, I'm bad at a lot of things, but I'm decent at that. So, uh, that helps that help with that whole thing. But yeah, I mean, to, to come back to, you know, first week of school and I'm sitting in the back of the classroom and like, every laptop open is like on Facebook, not even paying attention to this like first class education we're receiving. <laughs> and I just came from a place where yeah. they would do anything to have an education it was just, you know, I, 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 and I didn't blame any of those kids I went to college with. Like I get it. I fall into those traps too. Stuff's great here. Life's easy and comfortable. And you know, once, uh, uh, once we get back and get accustomed to that stuff, I mean, we do the same things. You know, we bitch about stuff we shouldn't bitch about um, because we forget. Me and you were also comparatively old men when we went to college. I was 27 when I started, 31 when I finished. Right. Um, you know, if, if you or I went to college when we were 18, we probably would have been doing the same thing. Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And I'd be, and I'd probably be Muslim if I was born in Iraq. So it's just like, yeah, it's one of those things, man. I, it, it, it's exactly, it's exactly the case, though. It's exactly the case. So how how does the journey happen that you go from you know playing on your college team to becoming and and this is also another thing as Jack is saying, you know, you're comparatively an old man in college that's comparatively also an old start to become a pro athlete. Yeah. Um, so I, I finished it, I graduated at 33 and I, and this was in 2000 and the four, well, 2014 into 2015. So technically I, I ended, uh, my ETS date from the military was 2015, February, 2015. So I decided at that point I just turned 34 then to uh, to hang it up and uh, you know and sort of just move forward and do something else. And I, I was interested in circling back into this you know film and television world, and um, I, I've always had this dream of having my own production company, and that's something that's still <laughs> a far cry from where I'm at now, but. Um, something I'm working towards and, and, you know, be able to, uh, create my own content. And now after all these experiences, like I want to make stuff that's very causal, right. And, and that tells important stories to help a certain situation and actually make a difference in the world. Um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to move back here. I was actually finishing up my master's degree and I did an internship out here with, uh, Peter Berg. And P Peter Berg's a oh, film yeah. director okay. and writer and actor. And yeah, he did uh, like Lone Survivor, Friday Night Lights yeah. are two of his most most famous movies. He did the, the movie called The Kingdom and, you know, a bunch of stuff that a, that a bunch of vets have I've, seen. I've been, <laughs> over, I've been over to that office before. It was years ago now, but I had a meeting with uh, one of his producers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Film 44. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I interned there, man. And it's funny, you know, I was just a... I'd done all this stuff or whatever, but I, you know, I'm sitting in there and I'm reading scripts and taking notes next to some, <laughs> you know, 22 year old student from U USC, um, that's doing the same thing. And, you know, and I'm, I was happy to do it. And it, it was just, it was, it's funny. I, I think a lot of people, 
think a lot of people in our community, we do have an issue with like veteran entitlement, especially special operations. And it's like, dude, I got an opportunity and that's all I got. You know, I had to work to earn anything from there and I'm cool with that. Like I shouldn't just jump people that have put, you know, well, blood and sweat and tears into, into that same line of work just because I did something cooler or, you know, or served my country or whatever. I, I feel like a lot of us get out and, you know, we, we have our own arrogance we carry around with us, but I feel like a lot of us get out and we feel like because we were in the military special forces that we should be the equivalent of special forces in, you know, whatever civilian application or civilian job, like we should be the special forces of film in that case, or the special forces of finance or whatever it is you're trying to go into. And it's like, no, that's not the case. Like you need to start over again and you need to learn this trade or skill or career. Right. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, there's guys that transition into, you know, the police forces and, and you don't just go straight to SWAT because you were a SEAL. Like, you got to be a cop. You know what I mean? Yeah. You got to, you got to go to the academy and start a ground with like, that's just how it works. You may have, uh, you may be promoted quicker and you have an advantage, I think in a lot of ways, but it doesn't mean you're not going to be the CEO right. next week exactly. because you were the team sergeant, you know, back yeah. in Iraq. So anyway, so I was doing that. And at the same time, um, I had actually in January of, of 2015, I played in this all-star game um, out in Charleston called the medal of honor bowl. And that was really cool because it was, um, it was all seniors around the country. Um, they, they've got like every year they got about four college football all-star games, right? The big one is called the senior bowl. And uh, I did not get invited to that one, but this was one of the, you know, next tier, um, all-star games and to be the, to be the long snapper, you know, I, I guess I'd, I'd failed to mention my sophomore year at Texas. Um, I started long snapping. I taught myself how to long snap it uh, when I was you know, basically 31 years old is when I snapped my first football. And, um, I went when I went overseas, I brought a couple of balls with me and worked on it and came back and actually won the starting job and then started for, for three years at Texas as the long snapper. So, um, which is like a thankless niche job <laughs> that uh, I was happy to do. I just wanted to be on the field, you know? And, uh, because I, I think cause I was a decent baseball player and I I'd pitched and I knew how to throw, throw a ball pretty well. Like if you can do that, you can figure out long snapping. You just got to mess with it for a while. Um, and so that's what got me into that all-star game was cause I was going to be the long snapper for one of the teams. So I go out and, and I play in that game and they have a, about a hundred NFL scouts go to these games from you know various teams. Um, four different teams approached me and, I uh, had meetings with me and were actually interested, even though I was pretty small and, and very old, um, for the NFL to at least, uh, uh, potentially give me, a, give me a shot or give me a look. And so I came out when I came out here to work with, uh, to intern at film 44 with, with, with Peter Berg, I, I, I started, uh, training at a gym here called Un- unbreakable performance center. And I'd heard about this gym because it, it was owned by a guy named Jay Glazer who works, uh, you know, he's worked for Fox sports for years as a, as an, uh, NFL and MMA analyst. Um, and you know, I came into the gym and met him and just was like, you know, a week later I'm like training with 
like Jadavian Clowney and all these like crazy NFL guys that are in here in their off season. And, you know, I'm not afraid to be the least athletic person in the room. It doesn't bother me. And, uh, I just started kind of grinding and, 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 and hustling on that. And, you know, every day was like, you know, get to the gym at 6am and be done training at about 10 and then go into the internship or whatever. And, uh, that was just sort of my life for a few months. And, um, the, the draft rolls around in May and I've like, I, I put on a crazy amount of weight cause I was told I needed <laughs> to weigh, you know, closer to two thirty um, to even get a look at long snapper in the NFL. And, and I, in college I played at like 190 at the top end, you know, I was not a big guy. And so I, I got all the way up to like 228. Felt horrible, but it was necessary weight. And uh, you know, I, I I get out there um, at our pro day out in, in Austin, and you know, perform once again in front of coaches and GMs this time, not just scouts. And then uh, as soon as the draft ends, I get a call um, from Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks, uh, telling me that they were they wanted to sign me. Um, as a, as a free agent, you know, to the, to the roster there and, um, give me an opportunity, give me a shot, you know, despite my, my age and, and everything. And, um, so, uh, I, I went out there to OTAs and training camp and was with the with team for about five months and I got to play and uh, I got to play in one game actually. And then we had a, uh, uh, our backup quarterback got, got injured. They had to bring in another quarterback and they had to free up a roster spot. So I ended up, um, only playing in that one game, which was, which was pretty wild. Still gotta um, be crazy though. Uh, you're, you're over a decade older than most of these guys. Like, I like, I was the oldest guy on the team in Seattle. <laughs> and I was also the oldest rookie in NFL history. Like it was <laughs> crazy. Man. You know what I mean? Like, like literally no the oldest guy on the team. And I, it, like, I, I just started playing football like five years ago. Did, you know what I mean? Did you even think it was possible that you'd be able to become a legit pro athlete at that point? Like it just sounds unfathomable. First of all, define legit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you played in, in the National Football League. Yeah, that's legit. Um, yeah, of course I believed it. I mean, I don't think – there's no way I would have been able to do it if I didn't believe it. I also understood what, how impossible it sounded and that it, um, would not going to be easy and that, you know, I would have to like be willing to, to be a long snapper, to do the thankless job, to do these other little things, to be a leader in the locker room. Like I had to bring other things to the table. I couldn't just be like, all right, man, I'm going to go, you know, be a wide receiver or whatever. Cause I'm, I'm just, slow and old and there's just i mean science is working against me uh and so you know i had to understand all that stuff and 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 but also realize that like people have done way more impossible things in the world right people have done way crazier things and um thousands and thousands of people over the years have become nfl players and they're just human beings like me you know, they may have different levels of athleticism, but they're just people. They're not cyborgs or something greater than I am. So, like, why can't I? You're, you're I mean, it's just obvious that you're a very humble guy, though, because, like, regardless of what position you're playing, how many games played, they don't just let any guy who's, you know, like, mildly talented to be in the NFL. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's a business. It's definitely a business. I mean, and, and I discovered that 
three days after that game I played in when I get, when I got cut, you know, but it's just, that's just how it is. I mean, that's, it's a business, it's a very expensive business. And, um, but yeah, I, I, I just, I, I was, I was serious. And I still am today. Just, I was so grateful for that opportunity, for that chance. I remember when, um, the GM, uh, you know, had to, John Schneider's his name. He had to walk up and, and tell me that it was over <laughs> in uh, the training facility there. And I could just see the hurt in his face <laughs> as he approached me. I knew what he was going to say because uh-huh. I could just tell by the way he's, cause he just like, he knows, he knew how much I poured into it and you know, not what I'd sacrificed overseas, just what I'd sacrificed in my life to like make this possible. I mean, you know, I was that guy at the Seahawks facility and at Texas that was like sneaking into the gym late at night, you know, stealing a key or, 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 or coming in, you know, using the code to get in there when you're not supposed to be in there and like doing extra work. I liked being in the gym by myself because I felt like, okay, at this moment I'm getting a leg up on everybody. Um, and, and, you know, people on people, they notice that stuff. They, 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 they get it, you know, they see those things and, that's what they want out of those super talented athletic guys. And you don't always get that from those people. Cause it's just a little bit, it comes a little bit easier to them. Yeah. So, um, anyway, but you know, when he came up, it was like, you know, it's like he, he just, he had just lost, uh, his puppy or something. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, <laughs> it was a tough conversation for him to have. I was fine with, it. I, I got it. I understood yeah. it was probably coming. It was going to, it, I mean, no matter what it ends at some point. It's got her. Yeah. Sure. So, but it, you know, the fact that I got to play in that game was huge. It's huge for everything that's happened since then. It was huge for, I mean, just that moment of, you know, I, in, in college, I got to lead the team out of the tunnel with the American flag before every game. That was something that a lot of football teams do. A lot of college teams especially do, uh, you know, ever since nine 11 and all that. And, um, Coach Brown, Mac Brown, you know, had had always said, "I want somebody who's got family in the military from our team to lead the team out of tunnel with that flag." And um, for me, they, you know, they said, "Well, you actually were in the military and are in the military, so you're going to do it, you know, if you'd like every game." And so I did that. And then when I go up to Seattle, typically they have, um, before the team runs out of the tunnel, they have a service member, active duty service member, or a veteran you know, run out of the tunnel with the flag and lead the team. That's obviously not on the, not on the football team, but for that game I played in, they asked me right before kick, right before we ran out of the tunnel, if I wanted to lead the, you know, the team out with the flag. And I was like, yes, I would, you know, of course I'd love to. So the one game I play in, I, you know, I run out of the tunnel with that flag and in college, we're not on the sideline during the national anthem. Uh, we're in the locker room. That's just the way they do things a little bit different in the pregame. Um, for, for this game, obviously I was on the sideline for the anthem. And so the one time I've been on the sideline for a national anthem, I like completely broke down in tears because I mean, part of it was the moment, just understanding what I, uh, what I'd sacrificed to get there, <laughs> you know, and it's like this childhood dream kind of coming to fruition that I, I'm, I'm actually a professional athlete. Um, on the biggest stage in the world maybe. And, um, but also, man, I thought about, you know, a, a good buddy of mine, uh, Brad keys, who, who, uh, I served with intense special forces group who's, who passed away in, in 2012. And, um, I, I, you know, a lot of other 
men and women I fought alongside that didn't come back or that have never really come home that are still alive, you know, uh, or the ones that have taken their own lives or the ones that feel they're not capable of what I believe we're all capable of, which is anything. Um, you know, it just, all that stuff hit me and I just like was overwhelmed with emotion and I just like cried, cried like a baby while they're playing the song. And, uh, you know, some of the, a bunch of the team noticed that and they came up to me after you know, right after the, that was done and was like, you know, kind of rallied around me and like they understood what a huge moment that was for me. And, and that sort of, I think leads into, yeah, I was gonna, a, the, really a, a year later. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, I mean, you can't really make for a better transition to what we want to get into next. So yeah, take us back to that whole time frame of Colin Kaepernick sitting during the national anthem and how you got involved with that. Yeah, so it's literally exactly a year later, um, and 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 through the rest of 2015, you know, I got released from the team. Um, I ended up with Jay Glazer starting this nonprofit called MVP, which stands for Merging Vets and Players, where we're bringing together former professional athletes and combat vets and helping them uh, walk the walk together through that transition, you know, and find purpose again once the the uniform comes off and we we lose that identity. And I was and I was involved in this clean water project with another NFL player named Chris Long, who plays out in Philly, Philadelphia for the Eagles right now. And where we're every year we take we take wounded vets and and we take former NFL players to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro to raise money for clean water. I mean, I was like cons- constantly looking for you know the next mission, which I think many of us uh, that wore the camouflage do <laughs> when we get home. You know, another way to fight, another way to serve. Um, and to stay involved with the community. And so I had all this stuff going and then, you know, all of a sudden it's like, I mean, you know, we've had, we've heard the drumbeat of, um, you know, stuff involving the excessive force of police officers and, you know, the black lives matter movement, all this stuff for years. This wasn't a new thing, but this was during, the, the election cycle, you know, Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. And it's like this, which side are you on thing? I mean, we are just getting pulled apart. Um, you got to pick one, you know, you can't, you can't be in the middle. There is no middle. It's like, are you on the right side of the history or the wrong side of history, whatever that is. And it's like, man, it is exhausting. And it hurts. I think a lot <laughs> as a, as a service member too, to like fight for the United States. And it just doesn't feel like it at all when you're here. Right. And yeah. then this happens and the 49ers, Colin Kaepernick was a 49er. That's my favorite team. I grew up in the Bay area, like Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and Ronnie Lott and Roger Craig. Like these guys are my heroes. Right. So I, and I pulled for Kaepernick the minute he got to the team, even when he was backing up Alex Smith, because I just thought he was a better athlete. And I just was like, we'd see him play in the preseason and be like, God, we got to get that guy on the field. He's amazing. And, uh, you know, sure enough, the next year he leads the team to the Super Bowl, which they almost won. Um, and so I'm like this huge Kaepernick fan and boom, there he is on the sidelines sitting down on the bench during the anthem. And it's like this huge news story. And I'm like, what is that all about? I'm like, there's gotta be a misunderstanding, you know? And then they do the, the, the media around it and the press and some interviews. And, you know, he straight up says, I'm not going to stand, um, for a flag that oppresses black people and people of color. 
or a song or, or whatever it was exactly. I'm probably misquoting slightly there, but um, essentially it was, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand for the national anthem because this country is oppressive. And my uh, understanding and, and, and vision and idea of what oppression is from my experiences is, I think, very different from what he was talking about. And so I, I think like a lot of people who, who fought was just incredibly angry, you know, and uh, it really hurt more than anything. Yeah, it, it just it, it, it was it was upsetting to see one of my kind of my heroes um, say things like that, you know. And, and when I when I thought, well, that guy doesn't know what he's talking. He doesn't. He has, he has no idea, perception of what oppression is. Right? Well, Nate, just to back up one second. I mean, when we talk about the national anthem or you know the flag, and the flag is a it's a piece of cloth, of course, but it symbolizes something else. The national anthem. I mean, I'm just kind of curious what those things mean to you. I mean, to some people they're, they could be seen as superficial expressions of patriotism, you know, singing the national anthem before a ball game or something like this. I'm just curious from your point of view, what that meant to you. Yeah. I mean, that's all, that's all, uh, you know, a matter of, uh, uh, you know, of our experiences shaping that feeling because I felt the same way before I served, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, it's kind of this, like, who cares thing? Oh, we're at a ball game. The national anthem's playing. Okay. I got to stand. I got to take my hat off, you know, out of respect, of course. But like, I didn't care, you know, I just wanted to get to the ball game. Sure. Like, let's just fast forward this part. And it wasn't cause I was on American. I just didn't give a damn because I, it, I had no experience in my life that, had, um, you know, given those symbols meaning really. Right. And then after, after serving, after, you know, I remember going through Sears school and oh yeah, <laughs> they raised that flag and it's just, man, it just, it's just different, you know, from yeah. then on, I was like, this means something. This is not, it is not, uh, just, uh, tr- tr- ritual or tradition that we have to do because of our forefathers is this like means a lot, you know, and it, 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 that just stuck with me. Right. So that's, you know, that's, that's my feelings and experience towards that. And, and you know, I, 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 I just, there's, there's, there's so much that goes into that from the, the history of the song and the poem originally and, and all that and what it means. And, and, and it can be interpreted in so many different ways. And I get that. Um, but either way you slice it, it was just like, uh, my initial thoughts with Colin was, you, you know, you haven't gone through anything. You don't know, you know, I just made judgments and decisions and choices for him judged based on my experiences, not his experiences. And I had to stop myself because I was falling into that trap that we're all falling into in this country of like, okay, now I'm going to pick a side and just dig in and not listen. And so I, I, I decided to, to not do that. Um, and part of that was, you know, I spoke to, uh, I spoke to my parents about this. I spoke to a lot of people in my life that I respected, um, because I was being approached you know, by different publications to, to write something Mm -hmm. or to speak out on this issue or come on the news and let's talk about it because I, you know, was in the special forces and I played in the NFL. So I like, I had that distinction of doing both. Um, 
And I think I was seen as this like one of these patriotic symbols um, in shoulder pads and a helmet. <laughs> and so uh, they, I, I, I finally, you know, my mom said something really important to me, which is interesting because she doesn't like to get into this stuff, you know, and she's a pretty conservative person just all around. I'm not talking about polit- politics. That's just how she is. But she straight up said, you know, Nate, at the end of the day, more hate is the last thing we need in this country. So just remember that before you, you do anything, you know, that's the absolute last thing we need. And so I, I, I finally agreed to write uh, an, an open letter for the Army Times. And the reason I, I picked the Army Times is because it was it's, it's not political. It's not a political uh, uh, what do you call it publication. Um, and also it just was like, you know what, I'll probably be able to, to really – I, I trust these editors more. I'll be able to control my message. I'm not going to, I was, I was nervous to write something for like, you know, USA today or whatever. And then I send it off and all of a sudden it's printed the next day and it's like all chopped up and yeah. changed and it's like things taken out of context. And so I told, you know, the army times I will do this if I can see the final edit and, and, and that's the only way I promised to do, I agree to do it. And, and they agreed. And so I wrote this open letter just kind of sharing my experiences, but also saying, look, I, I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you've experienced. I can only imagine what it's like to be a person of color in this country. Um, and it's, and I, I will never, I will never really understand. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just, I just want to listen and I want to try to figure this thing out because at the end of the day, you know, I want to do whatever it takes to, to get you to stand again, but stand because you feel the same things that I feel. You feel somewhat this pride in your country and not because um, it's a social obligation. Yeah, exactly. Not because you have to, you know what right. I mean? Like I don't want anybody to stand because they have to. I'm, I, I would rather have somebody that was doing what they could in the, in the community to actually make things better and change things, not stand than someone that just stands out of obligation, but they just live for themselves and they don't care. They just want to, you know, tell everybody else why they should be doing this and that and what the right and wrong and everybody else is wrong. Like, I don't care about that. You know what I mean? I want things to improve. I want, um, I want less crime. Uh, you know, I want safety for myself and my family. I want better, uh, policing. I want better everything. Like we, we are the best, but we should always, and that's why we're the best. Cause we always strive to just fix things. We're never, satisfied with being pretty good, you know, and we shouldn't be, that's not what our country's about. So anyway, you know, I wrote this thing and, and Colin, well, actually first America responded to this in a, in a pretty profound way. Like n- nobody reads the army times, no offense to anybody that works for the army times <laughs> to listen to this, but like, unless you're on an army base. Yeah, exactly. Like the only time I remember seeing it is when I was in la- the latrine and it's like there's a couple copies sitting on the floor there, and I'm pretty sure they're just backup in case we run out of TP. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just saying. I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's bad writing. I'm just saying like we just you know it, it's obviously yeah, what a lot of the stuff they put out too is like um, it's a, it, you know it's not political. It's not a lot of opinion pieces. It's just you know fluff, a lot of fluff, and that's that's okay. That stuff's not bad all the time, but. Um, but like then I woke up, I wrote it that night after he'd, you know, kind of said the, or the next night, maybe after he had said some of those things and it took me like an hour and a half to write this thing. Cause I just like, 
I just like, it was just stream of conscious, consciousness, conscious or consciousness. I can't remember one of those. Consciousness two. Is fine. <laughs> Obviously I'm not a writer. So, um, I, you know, but I, 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 I put all that stuff down. I went back and, you know, proofread it a couple of times and I was like, I had somebody I knew look over it and I was like, all right, cool. Send it off to them. I wake up in the morning. They, they, they've run the thing already. I was out on the West coast. And so, you know, I probably got up at like seven or so. And so it's 10 AM East coast. My phone's got like, yeah, yeah I was thinking like by then the news is everywhere, everywhere. Like, you know, it, it was, I, I literally had like a hundred emails and 30 missed calls, <laughs> voicemails and requests to go on all these, you know, it's just nuts that, you know, the social media state, you got shared, I think mostly through, through Twitter and, and yeah, maybe Facebook. I don't even know. I think mostly Twitter though. But it was like all these journalists and people that work in the sports world. And, and I think it was because it was this balanced idea of like, man, this like hurts for me to see this. But like I want to understand why and I want to like move forward and, you know, how can I like help me understand better what what's going on and what I can do to help. And, you know, I think 80, 90 percent of us, I don't know feel the same way for the most part. We may lean left or right, but like that's what, you know, we, we respect the other side. We just don't ever hear those voices because it doesn't sell. You know, yeah. the media doesn't, doesn't want those voices heard because it's too, it calms down a, a pretty rational situation and, and they want to keep everything irrational and like over the top and highs and lows. I mean, that's just what, that's what sells. That's what keeps us watching. So it, it, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was crazy, you know, that, that day. And the, the one interview, the exclusive interview I agreed to do was with NFL network because once again, it's not a political, uh, you know, channel. Um, people might argue with that. The NFL, <laughs> I guess can be considered as political, but it's, it's, it's less political. Not partisan. Yeah. 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 Not partisan. Yeah. I wasn't, uh, it wasn't CNN or, or Fox. So, cause I, I figured if I do one of those, everyone's going to make a decision yeah. depending on which channel I went on, no matter what which I Which is said. so ridiculous. Yeah. If you make a CNN appearance, they'd be like liberal activist green beret. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bleeding heart, bleeding heart, or, you know, they were the opposite. So it was just like, I, I couldn't, so I didn't do that. So I went on the NFL network, I did this interview and like, I'm in the, I'm in the, uh, the green room waiting to go on. And it's like going to be this live interview. And all of a sudden I get a phone call from, from Colin Kaepernick's publicist saying, Colin read your letter and he wants to sit down with you tomorrow if you can. I was like, wow. Okay. Um, all right, let's do it. So I go on the air, do the interview. Don't obviously mention that. And the next day, um, they were actually playing the, the San Diego chargers, uh, in the last preseason game of the year down in, um, San Diego. And so I, uh, you know, I, I got in a car and, and went down there and, uh, about four hours before kickoff, I meet Colin in the lobby of the team hotel. And he, you know, he's got like the Afro and he's a huge dude. And he's like six, <laughs> five, six, six, like there's no hiding what's going on here. And we're sitting in front of the big wind windows of this hotel. It's like in the middle of Horton Plaza in San Diego, if anybody knows where that is. I mean, it's like a very high vis area and we, we, we like sit down and there's no, there's no media around. There's nothing like that. Eric Reed, 
uh, actually joined us, who was the you know person that knelt alongside Colin uh, in that first game, and you know we just talked about this stuff, and you know he wanted to assure me like I'm not this isn't anything against the military. I'm very appreciative of the military, and he's like, and I'm appreciative of a lot of police officers too. I mean, I got people that served you know, in the law enforcement community in my, in my family and all that stuff and or extended family, I guess. And I was like, we, well, you, you know, in my opinion, you got to recognize those things. You got to say, <laughs> people need to understand that you're not generalizing or painting broad strokes against all cops because that's exactly what you're fighting against, you know, generalizations and people making judgments because of, uh, the way somebody looks, you know, and, uh, you got to be sensitive to that. You got to be willing to listen if you want people to listen to you. That's just the way it is. And you know, previously, the, some stuff had leaked out about him, you know, wearing the the, the, the pig socks. Yeah. The cops, you know, depicted his pigs on his uh, at a football practice, and he had the Fidel Castro shirt and like the, the Malcolm X hat and a lot of these uh, sort of, I guess, militant looking, you know articles of clothing that he was wearing and some of the ways that he was talking, you know, and, but when I sat down with him one-on-one, it wasn't like that, you know, Mm -hmm. it was very just kind of candid. It's like one human being to another human being. Like he he was a very reasonable person and sensitive to what I had to say. Uh, and I was the same way with him. Just like, I really just want to understand man and, and try to help. And it was, it was a very positive, powerful conversation. And through that conversation, um, we got to the, the matter of not standing for the anthem, you know, and talking about what that looks like. And I said, you know, straight up, I mean, to me and to a lot of people, it looks more like you just don't care than anything. Like you're back sitting away from the team, you know, your head down, sitting on the bench, like you're just like, yeah, whatever. I'm not into this. You know, um, it doesn't look like you're taking a, a, making any kind of a, a stance quote unquote, uh, towards anything or like doing it. It's not very powerful, at least right. to me. Just and, apathetic. Uh, you know, it, yeah, exactly. And, and, and I said, I think at this point, like everyone's very aware of what you're talking about and doing. Like, I think we should figure out a program or, or, or a plan or what we could do to reach some of these goals and make some measurable goals first of like, what do we need to see here? You know what I mean? What's going to get, what's going to, what's, what's going to, uh, make you feel better about the way things are going. And, uh, so I, I suggested standing, you know, I said like, look, I, I think <laughs> for a lot of us, it's going to be hard for people in the military community and not just the military community, but just people, Americans, um, to, to be okay with that because they understand things aren't, things have never been perfect, you know, but we, we have come quite a distance, I think in the civil rights movement and whatnot. Um, there's still a long way to go. Absolutely. But, um, there's, there's issues all over the map. I mean, I'm, I'm a veteran and the veteran, you know, the, the veteran community, we have a ton of issues, you know, there's a lot of things that need to change and improve with you know, people that are fighting for their country, willing to take a bullet, going to war, making not a lot of money and then coming back and struggling with the transition and not getting the care that they need. Um, and that's all of our problems as Americans. That's not the responsibility of, you know, the government to just take care of 15 million of us or whatever. There's a lot of us. 
and, you know, and, and he understood that and he was appreciative of that stuff. And he said, okay, what else? I'm not going to stand. I already said, I'm not going to stand until I see these changes. And I was like, what changes? <laughs> like you got to know. And he didn't really have an answer for that at the time. Um, it, I, I think it, it blew up much bigger than he thought it would. Um, I know it did. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it got to this matter of, of, of the actual gesture itself. And he said, all right, ooh, you know, I'm not going to stand, but what else can I do um, to demonstrate? What else, what's another way I can protest where I'm not hurting you, I'm not hurting, you know, uh, other people that served our country and fought and those that ultimately paid the ultimate sacrifice. And I said, well, no matter what, if you don't stand, like people are going to be, they're going to be upset, you know, but I think, I think an option potentially it would be to, to take a knee instead of sitting. I said, I, I think I personally, I think it's more respectful. Um, I said, I said, most importantly, I think you need to be alongside your teammates because, um, that's sort of a snapshot of where we're at as a country right now. We're not, yeah. we're not next to one another those that we maybe disagree with, we're not willing to, you know, work alongside them to improve things. I said that like visually, that's an important part of this. But also I said, I mean, I think people take a need to pray. People take a need to propose to their wives. Um, you know, we'll, we'll take a knee. You see a common image of a, of a warfighter taking a knee in front of a cross, um, or, or a grave of a, um, representing, you know, a service member that has been lost. I just, that's just how I see things. I said, it, I think if you did that, it would at least show that you're willing to listen and adjust a little bit. Um, if you won't stand, you know, I would, I would, I would ask you to do that. And if you do that, I'll, I'll, I'll stand, I'll stand alongside you, man. I'll stand next to you. And, and he, he agreed. He said that, that he thought that was more powerful actually. And, um, and that's what he decided to do that night. And so, you know, at the game, it's military appreciation night. Um, it's like the week before nine 11, I think. Um, and it, there's like a seal team jumping into the stadium. <laughs> They've got a, a, an African American naval, um, uh, African American sailor that's singing the national anthem. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just very bizarre. And, uh, do you, do you think purposely done on some level to say no, 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 no. The I think that is not some racist organization? No, I don't think so at all. I think that that was just that those decisions usually are made long before gotcha. <laughs> the game. You know what I mean? Like sure. weeks before. So I think it was before this even became a, was even a, an issue. It's just you know, hey, there's a lot of black people in the military, and that's awesome because I love them. You know, I had some on my team and we always have these, we have these images, you know, immediately what pops in our head when we think professional athlete, we typically think black guy. We think, uh, you know, member of the military, we think white guy. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's funny because it's just like, man, we're the most, the military is, is, is probably the most diverse organization in, in the country, maybe the world. Although, I, you know, I would say 
you know, we, we've talked about this before on the podcast. When you think special operations, you do think white guy. There is a there is a stereotype about and, and a perception, a public perception that's only partially true that. I mean, there are a lot of white men in special operations, but uh, again, that that image that comes into people's mind, like there's also, you know, my first team sergeant in special forces was half black, half Korean. I mean, so there there is a diversity there, and most people, you know, like uh, like Nate said and you said, unfortunately, <laughs> the, the, the diversity is not the first image that comes into yeah. the public's I mind. I get it on some level, though. I mean, like what would you say 80 plus percent of the guys we interview on this podcast are white males and it's not like we seek out white males this is just it sounds like you do community (laughs) 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 no no i I, yeah i mean in the special operations community yeah um and i don't know what the reason for that is but i mean that's that's a whole nother discussion i'm sure yeah i mean well here you know i just went to a reunion for a Marine battalion, the two seven who, you know, that, that battalion's lost more guys. Um, I think in the global war on terrorism than any other battalion in the military. And, you know, I go to this reunion, it's like 80% Hispanic, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it wasn't the, uh, not what I was expecting and call me racist, I guess, for not thinking that, but I was expecting what I saw in, you know, in the special forces team, which is probably like you said, maybe 80%, I don't know, of white guys, you know, and I go in there and it's like all these Hispanic dudes and they're all pipe hitters too. And they've seen, you know, far more, you know, crazy stuff than, than I have in combat probably. And, you know, so that was, it's just interesting. But the, the, the demographics are, are, I think are not what people expect at the end of the day. Yeah. No, I agree. So anyway, you know, he, he, uh, they go out there and, and, and after all the pregame ceremonies, the, the anthem starts playing and, Colin takes a knee, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm looking up at the flag with my hand on my heart and at the corner of my eye, I'm like noticing this and, you know, I'm like, okay, at least he, he, you know, he did what he said he was going to do. And then all of a sudden the booze come in and it's like, it is loud. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's, there's people saying things behind us, uh, you know, about him, why, why, you know, why you better, I don't know, I'm not going to get into it, but. It just was like, man, you know, and, and in that moment, um, I really felt for him and for what he was kneeling for, uh, because of that. And that's not, man, most of us in our country aren't going to be that jackass in the stands. That's like, you better stand for the anthem. But then when, when this is all going on, the last thing you're thinking about is the anthem. You know what I mean? Uh, that same person that I was maybe before and, and just oh, somebody that's, you mean you know, just, just wanting to tear this guy apart. Um, so anyway, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was really bizarre, you know, and it, and it just that moment, I mean, those are my two anthems on the field, you know, <laughs> and, uh, very different experiences, both of them. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so crazy. I mean, who would ever think, you know, cause then you fast forward from there that the president would be making remarks about this and, you know, being extremely vocal about it. And then our vice president, Mike Pence, going to a game and I was talking to Jack before the show doing honestly what I would call a publicity stunt of going to an NFL game to purposely walk out after the anthem because of what the players were doing. 
Yeah, well, he, I mean, it was uh, yeah, totally, that was totally a publicity thing. And, you know, I don't think he'd even deny that if you asked him to his face. Um, because, yeah, it was just a state, he was making a statement. He didn't stay for the game. Um, yeah, I, I, it is bizarre, you know. It's bizarre that uh, it's such, it's still such a hot topic now, two years later. Yeah. And, uh, but it just shows where we're at, you know. It's just a representation of, of where our country's at right now and um what's frustrating about this whole thing is is to me and all this stuff people want to blame you know they want to blame an individual or whatever or an organization for all this stuff man but it's all of our our faults collectively for letting this happen you know for letting us be pulled apart Mm -hmm. for letting our emotions uh you know, overtake a reason and a listening and, and understanding. And it's like, and that's from people on both sides of the aisle, you know, the farther left and farther right you get, in my opinion, um, nuttier it gets. Yeah. Yeah. And the more, and the more, the, the more problems you're, you're, you're causing because everybody wants you to take a side, you know, yeah. I, I, I sit in the, in the, in the radical middle or alt middle or whatever you want to call this place. And it's like the most unpopular place to be. It really is. People don't understand. Like, what do you mean? Like you have to make a decision. You have to choose. You have to hate those people over there. What's that? Yeah. It's like, you have to hate those other people over there. And it's like, no man, this isn't Sudan. (laughs) I don't, I don't have to hate those people. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's just, it's frustrating. Well, some, that, but. Something I wanted to ask you too, Nate, was it, it sounded like when you sat down with uh, Kaepernick that he was receptive and listened to, and, and even learned something from what you had to say. Um, I was wondering if you learned anything from him and from the message that he was trying to convey to the public. Yeah, um, a lot. I think I've learned more since then. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, I stayed in, Colin, in contact with Colin for several months after that, but I've, I've, you know, kind of, uh, developed relationships with a, a lot of other players in the league. And, and, you know, like for instance, Malcolm Jenkins, who's also on the Eagles, who sort of has, um, you know, been one of the leaders of the players coalition here and sort of, um, you know, negotiated the, um, the, the, the deal with some of the, with the NFL that, you know, they were donating, I think $89 million or so, to these, you know, activist causes that the players are involved with and, you know, and, and Doug Baldwin, another guy who I played with in Seattle briefly, but have gotten to know more since then. And, you know, he's very appreciative. First of all, his, his father, um, I believe his father was in the military and a police officer. Right. Um, but anyway, he's like, I love what you're doing, man. I appreciate that. But he'll always remind me and be like, but you do understand like injustices, they, they exist. They do exist. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, he, he, you know, he didn't grow up in a, in an area like I grew up in obviously different skin color too and different experience. And I'm trying to understand as much as I can. I, I, I will never be able to fully relate cause I mm-hmm. didn't go through that period. Just like Colin will never be able to fully relate to what it is like, um, to go, you know, fight for somebody else's freedom. <laughs> you know what I mean? In a, in a foreign country, I guess, um, you know, what he's doing back here, I guess you could equate to that, um, for, for people of color in this country. But well, what about, you know, what I was thinking is, so after this all happened and the election happened, I, I clearly remember, and it was all over, kind of went viral 
Stephen A. Smith from ESPN saying, you know, I'm pretty much done with this guy, Colin Kaepernick, in that, like, you want to take a stance, you want to be political, go for it. But then when the election happens and you come out there and say, I didn't even vote, then, like, what the hell is your point? And, and he yeah. was pretty – and, I, and I, I get Stephen A. Smith's point there. You know, if you, if you want to go out and make a political statement, then, you know, you should be – you should be voting like that's that's a part of being in a democracy is that right. that's our one tr- chance to make a difference and you choose not to and and he was pretty pissed about that and i i get that point yeah he said you know colin said i i'm not gonna um i'm not gonna participate in in, in an election and vote for um you know how did he say it Basically, you know, you know, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to vote uh, for an oppressive state, right, or something like that. And uh, ironically, at the time, this is before the election, so guess what? Our president is black. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and just like you said, like that is that is not the way to change things. That's the number one way to change things um, is to be involved in that process. And especially if with your celebrity, if you get out there and say either I support this candidate or we cannot allow this other candidate to win, a lot of people are going to follow suit. Totally. Yeah. They had uh, a a guy named Chief David Brown. He was a police chief in Dallas, Um, you know, African-American man. Um, He lost a son and a brother to to drug related and gang related activity and, and a police shooting. Uh, I think his son was killed by, slain by officers, but I believe his son was also shooting at the officers. I don't know the details right now. I should know that. But anyway, the dude, instead of letting that defeat him or becoming somebody that just fights the system, he changed the system by becoming an officer and ultimately becoming the police chief in Dallas. And then he was the, he was a police chief when these five officers were slain i remember um, that yeah was that two years ago and he was in the press and he and, and i can't remember what it was but they, they they were throwing some shade at him and he was like look don't come at me with that racism stuff because like you come and join my police department i'll put you back into your community yeah and he started right. talking about how the police uh they were being asked to do things by society that policing was never designed to do in the first place i, I thought he, he had some very meaningful words i thought really meaningful and he's yeah. not a conservative (laughs) he's just he's experienced it he's been there and he knows what it takes to change things right and he knows that i mean he was i sat on a panel with him at at rice university and he was talking about you know how low the numbers are in in african americans that are joining the police force at this point because of that demonization of cops and that image Mm -hmm. right now and then there was people in the audience, you know, that, that there's always people in the audience, of these things that come there to just pick a fight. Right. So, you know, they came down there, they came there and they asked him a question about, you know, how are things never going to change if people aren't going to stand up for us and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he had this point about how the lowest, some of the lowest numbers in that election as to why, cause somebody brought up the president, you know, in that group, um, some of the lowest numbers in that election were African-American males. You know, some of the lowest numbers and that and that's probably the reason um, that Donald Trump won and Hillary Clinton didn't, you know, because of it's just turnout. It's Mm -hmm. just people that were willing to go. And it's not because 
it's not more because other people were just are just racist bigots, you know, that voted for him. It's because not enough people came out and voted for the other person. I mean, it, it's just like we, we just we, we're just so irrational at this point. And, and he's one of these people that has experienced it, serves in his community, you know, and um, after everything he'd been through, he understood you know, how I make a change now, how I really fix things is to be a part of that rebuilding process and be a part of, um, you know, cleaning things up and doing things the right way. And, and I think Dallas is one of the, the leaders and innovators in that, in that way. You know, when you look at, when you look at the numbers and, and how they, uh, uh, you know, the treatment of a lot of people in the, in the communities and the wrongful arrests and all this stuff. I mean, it's, their policies are just, uh, kind of leading the way on things because, and a lot of it's because of him and, and what he stood for. And of course there's going to be people that disagree with that, but Hey, the guy's trying to make a difference. Yeah. I have to say, I think that when you went out on the field with Kaepernick that, how can I phrase this? There, I'm not a, uh, a sports guy. I don't really follow sports. Don't necessarily care. I mean, I respect, you know, the passion that you have for it and all the hard work you put into that, of course. Um, but when I see people talk like coaches talking about, you know, leadership in sports and stuff, it, it never really spoke to me. But I think that, you know, the the way you handled the situation, I can I can see it. I can see some leadership there because what you were trying to do is advance the conversation. And by going out on the field with Kaepernick, you were sending this signal that, well, maybe he's doing something we disagree with. But this guy is still an American and deep down, he's still a good person. Right. Yeah. I mean, he, he, that was, I think that's a really important image, you know, to see two people that couldn't look more different, you know, <laughs> I mean, Colin's on a knee, he still comes up to my shoulder. Um, and, and, and taking two different, uh, stances, mm-hmm. quote unquote, uh, during this, you know, this time and two different experiences and backgrounds and belief systems and what they think maybe is right or wrong, but still willing to listen to one another and respect one another, you know, and, and after the song's over, you know, give each other a hug and move on with our lives or whatever, like that level of embrace that we just, we don't see right yeah. now. We're not experiencing is, 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 is part of the major issue. I think, I mean, you know, you don't have to agree about everything. You shouldn't agree about everything. You don't have to like everything. Um, but sh- what should be different about our country is that you respect it, period. I mean, yeah. that's ultimately what we fought for, whether we like it or not. We fought for these freedoms, these ultimate freedoms um, for everybody um, th- th- that is here. And and we have to you know, all continue to to fight to free the oppressed as long as I live. I, I want to. Uh, anyway, and that's you know that's this that's the Army Special Forces motto: "De oppresso libera." That's just who I need to be uh, moving forward, or I feel like I'm not doing what I was trained to do. And uh, oppression it it, uh, it rears its its head in, in various forms, in various ways, at various levels. Um, but you know, it absolutely exists in our world, and I think uh, in our country, maybe less, a lot less than. Many parts of the world, but that's my experience. Yeah. And all yeah. I can do is 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 try to just make things better, whether it's on a small scale or a large scale, a little bit every day. 
Uh, I think the other really important thing that you've been mentioning is, you know, listening to other people and just sitting down. And I, I think this is part of the a special forces skill set actually is the fine art of shutting up and listening to what people are telling you. Um, because I mean, you and I can sit here and talk about racism all day and it's kind of like, huh, well, okay. But it's just important to listen to what the black community has to say about that, because there are kids who grew up differently than you and I grew up and, you know, a lot of them grow up in, in black communities where, you know, the cops are throwing handcuffs on them and slamming them down on the hood of the police cruiser. And sometimes it's with cause. And a lot of times it isn't. And that's a totally different experience than we've had in life. Exactly. I mean, I mean, you said it. There's never, nothing really to add to that. But that's that's totally that's totally the, the, the point I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to make by by sitting down with him, by moving forward with him. I mean, I, you know, I tried to, to work with him, uh, throughout the season and, and, and beyond, you know, and think there's, there's a lot of things he's done and said since then that I just, I, I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. I'm not like, I'm not this, like, I'm not just like pro Kaepernick, everything. That's, <laughs> it's not who I am. It's not what yeah, I'm, that, that's not the point. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm still going to, I'm still going to like try to listen and learn and, and move it forward. And then when it's time for me to make, when it's time for me to make my points, you know, not, I'm just going to make my points or to, to, to try to encourage him to think about these things too, then I'm going to take those opportunities to do that. Um, but it's just like anything. It's just like when you grew up as a child, the minute your parents push something on you and say, you have to eat this or believe this, you just didn't want to do it. You fought it. It's the same thing with this. I mean, we, we, you got to be a little bit smarter than that. You know what I mean? And you got to mm-hmm. be a little more sensitive to that stuff and let people make decisions for themselves, provide them with information uh, or stuff that you understand or believe, and then let them live their life and let them make those choices uh, and, and, and be supportive of them as long as they're not hurting anybody. Um, and that's what we need to do. Just like we do as we should do as family members, you know, we got to do as a country. So where, where do you see this going from here, Nate? I mean, we're now hearing about that they're going to find NFL teams if guys are kneeling. And, I mean, it's become more and more of an issue, especially of, as I kind of mentioned, you know, last season with the president coming out, calling the players kneeling sons of bitches. Like, it's it, this is not going away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I will I, I will say this and a lot of people will disagree with this one too but i think roger goodell has handled the situation really well uh throughout this process because it is he's in a tough spot i mean the owners own the teams they do right um it is their businesses there is their product whatever but without the players there is no business there's no league and you know we can't just ignore that it's it's obvious i mean like everybody nobody knows the names of the owners everybody knows the names of the players like that is just the way it is um and for him to play that 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 really delicate game and balance of like taking into account everything the players are saying and trying to make concessions and make changes and 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 work through that while also um working with the owners is not an easy job. And yes, he gets paid a crazy amount of money, but, um, I thought, I thought he handled the situation really well. And people love to rip on Roger Goodell for everything that he does, but 
through this whole situation, I thought he's done a great job because it's not easy at all. I, I thought it was um, really interesting to be this whole this whole scenario is very interesting because sports are seen as so like intrinsic to American life, and it is like you know the the fact that we say the national anthem that we sing the national anthem before sporting events like it it's something that's like so ingrained in the fabric of american society and to see that space politicized in this manner like i think it freaked a lot of people out yeah yeah no it, it definitely it definitely did it's just it's one of those things for me Sports was always sort of sort of an escape. Sacred ground. Yeah, like I, I mean, I remember being overseas and like getting back to the team house and like it's five in the morning and I'm turning on, you know, Monday Night Football or whatever to watch that to like escape from all this stuff. And uh, so I get that. I totally get that. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a there's a, there's a whole interesting history about why we even play the Star Spangled Banner at sporting events because it. It, it originally was to honor the military. That's why we started doing it. We started doing it during World War One, actually a hundred years ago this year. Um, and it was during the World Series, Boston Red Sox versus the Chicago Cubs, the two cursed teams. Uh, eventually, and uh, it was Game One at Wrigley Field, seventh inning stretch, and the third baseman for the Red Sox was actually in the Navy, and he was granted furlough to play in the World Series and. They start the military band in the stands starts playing the Star Spangled Banner, and he like snaps to attention and faces the flag and all that. And, and out of respect, the rest of the players in the field, including Babe Ruth, who's on the pitcher mound, take their hats off and out of respect for him. And uh, everybody uh, in the in the crowd, a lot of them started to stand and kind of sing the song, and it was like this sort of unifying moment. While we, you know, we're in the throes of, of World War One, we'd already lost a lot of men fighting and it was like i think that was the lowest attended world series in a long time and it was just this tough mm -hmm. it was a difficult time it's right before the great depression obviously and all this stuff so that's happening they move the you know the game comes uh, back the next night to to wrigley and they do it again and it's a big hit then the game goes out to boston for game three and uh, or the series goes out to boston for game three and before the game, they decided to play the Star Spangled Banner and like honor. I think they honored some like wounded warriors <laughs> on the field, which is really bizarre. So fast forward 13 years later, um, and that's when the Star Spangled Banner actually becomes the national anthem. It wasn't even our national anthem yet. And one of the major reasons was because its popularity at these sporting events and uh -huh. these like big gatherings, because it brought people together. You know, it was just like this unifying moment. And uh, and now what brought us together seems to be tearing us apart at the very same venue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's the, the original reason they started doing it was for the military for the troops. Like that's I why was, they started. It's a military song before it was the anthem. I was not aware of that entire history. Yeah, no, that's neither cool. was I. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. It's really, it's really interesting. And, you know, being that it was a hundred year anniversary of that, I think it's an important story to tell. Um, and I'm working on that. <laughs> That's one of the stories I want to tell. Oh, cool. So, well, <laughs> yeah, I want to get into that. The What's next for you? I mean, is uh, are you going to continue pursuits in film? Is that something you're interested in pursuing? Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm out here now. Um, I got a lot of different irons in the fire and, and you know, uh, 
I've got the, the nonprofit stuff, the charity stuff, but like plug, plug it, personal, by the way, what's, uh, yeah, yeah, plug, you plug should. any yeah. charities you're so, a part of. Yeah. So MVP is the charity I mentioned that I, I co-founded with Jay Glazer and it stands for merging vets and players and vets and players.org is the website. And, uh, like, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, we, uh, every week, you know, we, we meet up at the gym and we train together and then we, 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 we sit on the wrestling mats as a group at veterans and athletes and we, uh, you know, we bitch <laughs> and we <laughs> celebrate each other and we like, it's that locker room feeling that we all miss that team room where, you know, we, we just connect on a weekly basis because it's, it's so easy to, to want to isolate and for us to, you know, get back home and, and want to try to forget about everything and move forward and get away from uh, what we were used to. And, and the athletes struggle with similar things. And I, I'm not comparing what they did on the sports field to what we do on the battlefield. It's not the same at all. But the transition is very similar to to feel like you'll never do anything as important as you did before, you know, to have that elite feeling uh, of, a, of, a, of a war fighter and like what you're doing for the world and your country and then to come back and try to work in for instance film and tv and be like man this is not that important compared to what i did it's a tough thing yeah. to yeah. experience right well it, like last uh, two weeks ago we had tony gonzalez came in to uh, to mvp and joined us and um you know, he's a 17 year NFL, uh, player, maybe the greatest tight end in NFL history. He's going to be a hall of famer, uh, if he's not already. And he comes in there and he's sitting down with us, you know, and he's talking about, he said, I, three months after I got done playing, you know, I was really struggling inside and I didn't know what it was. I thought I just was out of whack because I was supposed to be playing that year and I wasn't anymore. And, you know, it just was a different thing. And, he said he was at dinner with his wife and he just started bawling, you know, out of the blue. She's like, what is wrong? You know, and he's just like, I'll never be great again. <laughs> I just, it's just like realized that you know, he's in his thirties yeah. you know, and it's just, it hit him. It's like, I'm, I'll never be great again. I, I'm peaked. I'm done. It's like, <laughs> you know, when, it's, uh, it's just downhill from here. And that, that's hard to deal with. It's hard to, you know, when Ian I, interviewed Buzz Aldrin, he went through that same, I mean, after you've walked on the moon, what do you do? Yeah. You know, <laughs> what right. comes after that? It's like the curse of ambition, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 so, so those struggles are the same and, you know, and that's what we're, that's what we're doing with MVP is, um, providing that community, but also pushing each other to like find another way to be great, you know, mm -hmm. find something else that you're maybe a little bit afraid of to lean into and, and chase and pursue. Cause that's like, that's ingrained in us and it's going to be who we are forever. And I think that we, we have to keep living that way. We have to still have service in our life. Uh, but we also have to solve problems, <laughs> you know, find them and solve them. Like that's, yeah. that's what we do. That's awesome, man. Well, nateboyer.com is the website, at nateboyer37 on Twitter and Instagram. This has been awesome and just so in-depth, and I think a lot of Very great words here. Yeah, I agree that people are going to hear. And, man, thank you for going You know, over an hour and a half with us. This is going to be over a two-hour <laughs> podcast this is for great. Jack and no, I. Really. But this all was right, just cool. an incredible interview, and, and we really appreciate you taking all that time with us. 
No, of course. No, thank you guys. And I appreciate you, you know, letting our voices be heard and, 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 and sharing that with the, you know, with the broad audience and, um, yeah. And, and just your open-mindedness, you know, I think something to, to leave you with that's important to me, uh, is, is that, you know, open-mindedness isn't exclusive to people, uh, with, with liberal values, just as patriotism isn't exclusive to people with conservative values. You know, we gotta, we gotta remember those things. You, yeah. you can, and you should be both. Yeah. And the people who disagree with us are not intrinsically evil people. You know, they're <laughs> a lot of times their heart is in the right place. They just feel differently about something. Exactly. There's, there's shit bags in every facet of life. You know? <laughs> not everybody that went overseas is a hero. Yeah. I'm sorry. You know, it's just the way it is. And we have to all understand that. Like that there's just good people and bad people. True. Well, Nate, thanks again so much. This is actually a really important message, I think. And uh, I'm excited that a lot of our listeners are going to get to hear it. Thank you, guys. I appreciate y'all. He has a really important message. Uh, and, you know, during the whole Kaepernick thing, I was one of those people who was like, I don't care. Look, if he wants to take a knee, that's that's his business. And I still feel that way. I mean, that's his business if he wants to do that. But hearing Nate, you know, kind of tell us through the walk us through the whole story in his own words, um, it was very enlightening. It was very interesting. Yeah, I agree. You know, what was funny is um, from what he was saying too about you know how the national anthem, as you guys were saying, used to be like sacred ground and it wasn't this political thing. It's funny. I, I'm sort of in the same boat as you. Uh, you know, I don't watch a whole lot of, um, you know, sports media stuff. And the only time I really see ESPN is like when I'm at my gym, it'll just be on. I'm in the locker room and I'll like overhear it. And half the time they're talking about politics. Half it's the like, time how, it's did, the guy how did this happen? Yeah. Half the time it's the guy, Will Kane, who was on the blaze. Like he was a political guy. He's now on ESPN and they'll be talking about like, civil rights and black activists and i'm like isn't espn supposed to be like a departure from this wouldn't i put on cnn or fox news if i wanted to hear about this like it's um we, we don't get a break from anything nowadays it's yes, like what it feels yes. like no you're absolutely right ian and, and i've been thinking about that a little bit and it's interesting how all of these previously apolitical spaces places in life are being politicized um i was doing like some research on uh, the alt-right and how that all came about. And a lot of it came out of uh, Gamergate. Yeah. And th- and there were th- those some of these gamer bros did and said things that were totally inappropriate. But what was interesting about that was that it was a games, video games, were a space previously, it was pretty much apolitical. Yeah. And, you know, Bald Duster 69 is playing Halo, and he's not, it's not about, you know, who you voted for. Yeah. And Gamergate brought politics into that space. Um, even in uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, there was a, a white paper pre- uh, published recently about uh, sexism in what amounts to like a board, like a fantasy board game. And it's like, and, and then sports is another thing. Like we just talked about with Nate, all of these spaces that were apolitical, it's like all of a sudden you see like, um, feminists popping up there and, you know, anti-racism activists. And it's like, Whoa, Whoa, what are you doing here? Yeah. Like this was, this was the safe place. This was where there was no politics and we could exist here and, and we could be sports fans together or we could, uh, shoot each other in halo uh, on Xbox and it, there was no politics there. And it's like, why is politics being inserted into every facet 
of our lives. Yeah, I think that there are certain groups of people who just want to like dismantle everything that we enjoy, you know, to to make it into a political statement or well, we have I mean, we've had some of these conversations before and uh I'm not going to say they're all marxists. I'm yeah. just going to say <laughs> there's there it, it is a, a a sort of neo-marxist strategy to um undermine the fabric of society. Yeah. Like what about, you know, there's even people who are like father's day is patriarchal and you know, just, those they, peop- they want to dismantle everything. Those people <laughs> on the, on the, on the far right, on the extreme right, the fringe, or I'm sorry, the fringe left. Yeah. As I was going to say, it's not far, the far the right far taking le- down father's day. Yeah. 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 No, it's, that's far, far left. Yeah. It's like they want to undermine all of the institutions. Yeah. And that is a, that is a profoundly Marxist strategy to keep everyone in a state of social turbulence. So you're unsure where your feet are standing. Yeah. Well, I love that. Hopefully you guys did as well. I I like when we go long for episodes like that because there was so much to be said. Um, And also Nate is a busy guy, so I appreciate him taking the time. Yeah, he he definitely, you know, he said his parents didn't want him to be average. Yeah. And he's not average. (laughs) (laughs) He succeeded there. No, definitely. He actually wanted to record with us early because he was like, oh, I'm a little limited on time. So I'm I'm really glad he went long. Uh, Of course, as I always mention, you guys, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches. And that, of course, is Crate Club. I was just showing Jack the latest Crate Club ad that I think Nick Betts wrote because I was on the phone with Nick recently and he was, you know, saying he's writing stuff for them. And it really is funny. It's well done. Guy drinking the pina colada out of the pineapple. It, you know, it's I don't really drink much, but I would be that guy. Drinking I, I, the pina colada? Yes. <laughs> if, you, if you had me choose between a pina colada out of a pineapple with that straw like that guy or bourbon, I'm going with the feminine curly drink. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I pretty much stopped drinking um, because I'm in this like new uh, era of trying to get back into shape. So I, yeah, I, it, I drank it, on the Fourth of July. Uh, it does hamper it. that. I I get it, man. You know, you definitely don't feel motivated to work out the next day after that. At least for me. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, we have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just partnered with Kuna. They have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether we're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Your dog's going to love it. And I, of course, have to mention for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show training cell follows former special operations forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. That's everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel, and that's at specopschannel.com. Take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership, only $4.99 a month. 
and check out the app for iOS, for Android. Next episode, we're going to have Navy SEAL Jack Carr on, author of The Terminal List. And for a while, so I've gotten some comments of like, why didn't you guys live stream Brad Thorson's studio and stuff like that? Um, we were having some audio issues that we worked out, but also with the older space we were in, we had this really awkward camera angle. It was a small office. Yeah. yeah. And we set up this office the same way. And you know what? I'll actually give uh, some credit to them because they're like an up and coming um, podcast. And I'm going to have one of the guys on while Jack is away. Um, I was watching what the guys are doing at Zero Bunker and I saw like the camera angle they had. And they just have one camera. It's the same, you know thing we you know we don't have like multiple cameras just in here so much better yeah and i was like this looks a lot better than what we're doing so i talked to <laughs> Kirill, our um tech guy and he was like yeah i can make it look like that and he did uh the live stream i'm probably not going to do as much because of the fact that now with um the whole algorithm stuff and them wanting you to boost posts like we get a fraction of what we should be getting for those live streams but when i put stuff on youtube it does pretty well so I'm going to try, this will be the first time we do it, will be the next episode with Jack Carr. I'm going to try to put every episode now on YouTube, um, and you'll be able to even see people who we have on, on Skype. Uh, you know, I'll encourage people to have their video up so that we could do that type of thing, uh, because why not have a presence on YouTube if we can? I just don't think we're going to live stream it, but we'll have it up on there. Um, we'll see how it goes with Jack Carr. I suspect it will go well, and if it does, that'll be... Um, something that we continue to do because why not? Why not have a visual element? So cool, man. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast that you're on. I don't know when that'll come out. It's but. it's it's going to be a ways down the road. Um, some sometime later in the year. Um, so it's, it's not like a it's not like what we do where it's like a full no, interview. No, it's going to be produced. It's going to be produced. It's going to be a mini series. Um, and and I think they're going to try to do it like um like serial or some of these other big podcasts. Or like the uh, did you ever listen to that? You probably didn't. The the podcast about like finding where Richard Simmons is. It's the same company. Really? It's the same. Yeah. Did you ever listen to that? No. I I haven't. I listened to the whole thing. It was pretty fascinating because... They did a good job? Yeah. Well, it was just a crazy story. Like, look, it's not like I have some interest in Richard Simmons, but like, I actually have an interest of people going off the grid entirely, I think is interesting. And this guy just stopped showing up to his classes that he taught out of nowhere, stopped making public appearances, and just like stayed locked inside his home. Did they find Richard? Uh, pretty much they made contact and it was like well known that you know, because they talked, they didn't talk to him, but they talked to, I think, his brother. They talked to his manager, and it was pretty much well, uh, you know, documented at that point that, like, the rumors of him getting a sex change, not true, but he just wanted to be left alone. He was tired of being in the public eye. It was becoming exhausting for him. He just needed time out. Yeah, but it's, it, I mean, it just is weird to go from, I remember seeing him on Fox News and him, like, leaning over the desk trying to like make out with neil cavuto he was just so over the top this flamboyant guy to now saying i don't want to be seen at all even by people that i've known like these are people that he's known for 10 20 years and he stops talking it to sounds them. like he just needs some time to get his head right yeah so it was an interesting podcast so well, if it's, it's done a, by them then it, i think yeah, this will same, be really well yeah done. it's the same people so i yeah i i mean i'd love to learn more about wayne simmons because i know what i know from you and I've actually spoken to the guy on the phone when I would book him, but I don't. I know very little about him. I would say I don't know much I, about like think, the man. Yeah, I think we'll all learn something new about him on uh, when this series comes out. 
I mean, there's also, I don't know if I should mention the name, but like a former contributor for the site. Like it was, Wayne was his son's godfather. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a really weird connection to the story <laughs> and that'll probably, I don't know what's going to end up being in this podcast or not, but we'll see. Cool. So be on the lookout for that. Um, at Software Radio on Twitter, on Instagram. We are giving you guys more content than ever, so just leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next episode with Navy SEAL Jack Farr. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.